in a video nasty. I wouldn't. I have far too much. But how, how can you judge on a video nasty? Oh, have you never seen one? I actually don't need to see visually what I know is in that film. Hello there, and welcome to the Video Nasties podcast. My name's Christopher Brown. So, there are low-budget films, and then there are the films of Andy Milligan. He was a driven talent, in the sense that he went beyond the call of duty to get his movies made for just the smallest amount of money. Even bad movie fans, though, tend to keep him at arm's length. There is something quite endearing about a DIY aesthetic, though. And you have to respect any, anybody who goes out there and creates something against the odds. Even if it does feature boom mics and shot, people talking off camera, and the director prompting lines. If Ed Wood had dreamed up Texas Chainsaw Massacre, then he'd have this film, The Ghastly Ones, released bizarrely as the poorer-titled Blood Rights in the UK. Into this house came the monsters of slaughter. With some of the most hideous tortures and heinous crimes ever shown on the motion picture screen. The Ghastly Ones. Race. Mutilation in the sadistic story of human slaughter. Meet Colin, the mad brother who loves to eat meat. Live meat. Or Liz, whose sick need is only satisfied by the sadism of man. Any man, or John, who learns the terror of the ultimate torture, but never lives to tell about it. The Ghastly One. What is it? Not for the squeamish, but an experience so sensually exciting that it will be the stomach shocker of your life. The Ghastly One. The film is this odd tale of revenge and bloodshed, set in an eerie Victorian mansion, where a family is gathered for will reading. Three couples have to spend the night there to inherit a fortune, according to this will. But then they start dying one by one. People are impaled by pitchforks, decapitated, dismembered, and have their throats hacked open with knives. There's a lot of gore, and a scene where a hunchback cretin called Colin the red herring in this whodunit eats a live rabbit. It's probably best to explain how this film got made and, and explain who Andy Milligan really is rather than anything specifically about the movie. 
He was born on February 12, 1929, in uh, St. Paul in Minnesota. As a self-taught filmmaker, he had heavy periods of, of, of creativity and, uh, and was had a, a lot of creative control over movies, including he did cinematography, costume design, as well as directing and writing. His, um, his family uh, reflects and appears as tropes within his work. He's a father, Andrew Milliken Sr. He was a captain in the US Army and moved the family around the country. His mother was Marie Gladys Hull, and she was um, a larger woman, apparently neurotic and alcoholic, and um, became, and was abusive towards members of the family, including her father. His father. <clears throat> he was a he was close to his dad, though, who affectionately called him Junior, uh, but that that relationship with his mother was troubled, both physically and mentally. Anyway, after finishing high school in 1947, Andy enlisted in the U.S. Navy, serving for four years. He had an honourable discharge in 51, and then set up in New York City. He started to dabble in acting on stage, and he opened a dress shop. It was this period during the 50s when Milliken became involved in the off-off-Broadway theatre movement, where productions were mounted plays by Lord Dunsey, and Janet Gennay at the Café Sino, a small Greenwich Village coffee house. And it was a place where there was um, a lot of talent emerging. And he used to hang out there and speak to various people and try and get them involved in whatever projects he was doing. He became involved in directing theatre production at Café La Mama, uh, which is the La Mama Experimental Theatre Group. During this period, he was designing clothing, um, and uses dressmaker skills for theatrical productions. It was in the 1960s, though, that his, his film, he, he started really getting involved in filmmaking. And he, it's, he, uh, meeting up with Kathy Sino, at this point he became, became known as a bit of like a, an almost Andy Warhol kind of character, able to, you know, attract various drifters and bums and involve them in the artwork that he wanted to create. His film first, his first first film, uh, was a thirty-minute black and white sixteen-millimeter short entitled "Vapors," and it's set on uh, this, this well, Friday at uh, St. Mark's Baths, which is a gay bathhouse for men, and it kind of goes into like quite about the awkwardness and uh, unconsummated meeting between two strangers. Um. He was then kind of fell into the exploitation genre um, he'd be, um, by uh, getting employed by people like William Mishkin to direct soft course exploitation horror features using these actors that were known from off-off-Broadway theatre. The, these early films he did before um, the ghastly ones or leading up to the ghastly ones were um, really morality plays where sleazy and amoral characters um, get payback for for bits their excessive lives. The ten, all his films right the way through his career tend to revolve around people who push the boundaries too far, who transgress what society would see as being acceptable, and then they're somehow punished for it. 
So we have things like dysfunctional family relationships, repressed sexuality, homosexuality, deformities, all sorts of kind of trashy elements Lena wants to make. And the titles include rather wonderfully films like Depraved, The Naked Witch, uh, The Degenerates, Gutter Trash, Seeds of Sin, and one of the films that he's best known for, Flesh Pot on 42nd Street. It was at that time he was there, in 66, he set up residence in a Victorian era mansion which was located on North Staten Island and St. George neighbourhood. It was close to Staten Island Ferry, but also very quiet and quite desolate. He managed to get people to call the house Hollywood Central and um, film several of his movies, including the ghastly ones there. Um, Milliken was a bit of a, a one-man army, um, writing, directing, building sets, sewing the costumes for nearly all his films. And then he'd just literally drag any Staten Island locals and, and crackpots who had nothing else to do in to try and like supplement the numbers beyond this off-off Broadway uh, theatre group that he had that he was able to, to utilise for the film. It's this film, The Ghastly Ones, though, that was his first, um, his first proper movie and was recorded on a handheld 16mm Anicron sound on film news camera. Now it doesn't sound that sounds very technical, but really what it is is um it's the film it's the cameras they use to record uh Second World War footage. What it allowed Milligan to do in it, and it was inspired by Andy Warhol, was to move the camera around at will. And um he used to do play something called sw- you know, swirl camera, which is actually in the notes of his um of his scripts. And this was a way to kind of create excitement and show that the the screen is going silly and crazy and basically just throwing the camera around while while violence was going on on set. And that kind of gave an impression of things getting out of hand. But the reality was that the real reason why he was doing it was he had no faith in the special effects he was able to he was he was generating, and therefore had to supplement the gore with something that kind of distracted you from its rather lo-fi origins. I mean, the budgets Milligan was working with when he's making these films were just so ridiculously low. I mean, he was working for under $10,000. And so what he used to do was kind of, as well as this swirl cam stuff, he used to like really get in tight and close into the action to kind of, dist- you know, to try and cover up what was happening? I mean, the thing was, he was also trying to make like he he, he wanted to set everything in the past to try and make it a little feel look a little bit timeless. But the problem with that is obviously the actors he was using for that weren't in any way, um, you know, able to to come up with you know they just didn't look like they were locals at all. They didn't look like they were from the time. So you kind of get this weird thing where everyone kind of looks like they're being they're dressing up like kids dressing up. I'm sure that wasn't what his intention was when he when he made the film, but it is kind of what comes across, you know. He was a very untrusting man. He had already had this will drawn up by lawyers in South America. And all he wanted of me was my signature attesting to the legality of his sanity. To this day, I don't know what's in these papers. 
But there is a thing about this, that the reality was he was able to make movies with such low budgets. People like Michigan would hire him to basically lash on to the 42nd Street Grindhouse circuit just because, you know, he came up with lurid titles and quite lurid content and he made them for absolutely nothing so they were almost guaranteed to make money back. Um, and, you know, so he kind of had this little mini production line for himself of, of like, really grim, low-budget, very poorly put-together films. The Ghastly Ones was his first colour film, and uh, produced by J.E.R. and titled by Sam Sherman. Um, he made Torture Dungeon in 69, and then after he moved, to, well, you know, and then he moved to London and directed Nightbirds in London, which we'll go on to a little bit in a minute. Um, and he also did a film called The Body Beneath. He kind of, uh, he worked with William Mishkin to get the cast together for other pictures such as The Bloodthirsty Butchers, The Man With Two Heads and The Rats Are Coming, The Werewolves Are Here, which all shot in 1969. He was really able to change stuff out. He returned to Staten Island in 1970. And then he kind of did some rather ridiculous period stuff. Again, Guru the Mad Monk, which he shot in 35, but again with this Artiflex camera. Um, he filmed the entire thing in a Manhattan church just to keep the price down. And then this was slogged actually as a double bill with his own film, The Body Beneath. Um, and then these British made films were slowly released in the US basically as time went on. Um, 
1972 marked Flashpot on 42nd Street, and then he went back to the gore films. Uh, Flashpot, unsurprisingly, as you can probably guess from the title, is a sexploitation movie. Um, he, I mean, you know, he, he basically chugged along for a while um, in terms of his work, releasing stuff right up until, uh, you know, operating fit, like small theatres and releasing films like Monstrosity right up to 1988. Um, I mean, listen, the top of this, you get, you get people criticising the Ghastly Ones a lot. I mean, Stephen King describes as the Ghastly Ones as a work of morons with cameras. And that's in Dance Macabre. Considering some of the stuff that King's put out over the years, you know, seems a little harsh, but hey, what can you say? Um, Milligan's reputation was for making just horrendously bad horror films with this Herschel Gordon Lewis gore effects. Um, he he has got he is known as being one of the worst directors of all time. To be fair, but there are elements of people rediscovering his work. Flashpoint on Forty Second Street, which you know is seen as one of his better films. Uh, was released in the 90s by something weird video and he had a biography released about him in 2001 which kind of goes into his theatrical background explains a bit more about him and also kind of you know sets about explaining the relationship between his troubled family life and his films and also the um, the mixture between his um his, you know, his theatrical background and the idea that he wasn't a hack at all, really. He just, you know, he was desperately trying to make films cheap for money. Um, it's a shame, therefore, that a lot of his exploitation films, certainly from the 1960s, the pre-Ghastly One stuff in black and white, those films that, you know, used to tour around shorts effectively that used to tour around uh, those 42nd street cinemas have now basically disappeared Milligan had as well as a rather troubled personal life had a, well, a, a, you know, a troubled childhood his personal life wasn't great he married Candy Hammond who appears in Seeds of Sin in 68 she was from North Carolina, a stage actress and an erotic dancer. Um, the problem with that is, of course, that he's gay. And no one took the wedding that seriously. He was, to be fair, quite misogynist and has a reputation for that. Um, it's alleged that on the, on the day that they got married, he cruised gay bars in New York to celebrate. And Candy divorced him the following year. In the, it cited that he focused, was focusing far too much on his filming and his film career and his directing rather than on the marriage. So she decided to go home to North Carolina. He was known as being demanding, bad-tempered, would fight with actors, film producers, finances. He would be abusive, yell, shout and those working for his films and bear in mind these are people that are getting very little money he would say the claim that people didn't work fast enough and was known to slap people about 
He was a non-smoker and a non-drinker and didn't take any drugs, and if anyone consumed any of those things around him, he'd freak out. Milligan was heavily into uh, sadomasochism and had some limited uh, serious relationships. Um, he was known to have friends who were as troubled really as he was. Um, for example, uh, Dennis Malvasi, who was a Vietnam vet and um, an ex-con. And um, he used to work trying to help Milligan create the films that he wanted to make. Um, Malvasi was like an old demolitions expert and was thought to have been uh, suspected for abortion clinic bombings in New York during the 80s. I mean, I mean, he just really, really troubling people. I mean, in 92, Malvasi was convicted and served three years for an attempted bombing of an abortion clinic in New York City, anyway. Uh, Malvasi uh, made the headlines when he and his wife were arrested for aiding the flight of fugitive James Cop, a suspected murderer of a New York abortion doctor. Um, they both served 20 months for that and released in 2003. Um, John Miranda uh, was uh, basically helped uh, Milligan and um, financially supported him when he moved to Los Angeles later in his life. Milligan was in poor health in, um, in the late 80s. He died of AIDS in uh, June of 91, the Queen, Queen of uh, Angeles Medical Center in LA at 60, the age of 62. He's buried in an unmarked grave somewhere in, in LA since he was broke at the time and no one knew him could afford a burial stone or even to have his body cremated. So, I've painted a very grim <laughs> picture of a man, I think. Uh, not particularly likable. Um, not particularly talented. He was, I think it's fair to say, an unusual fish. And I think that shows in his work. Blood rights, or the ghastly ones as I've been calling it, is a bizarre morality play with very few morals. There's a grim and incompetent rape scene. Uh, there's a moment where a live rabbit is eaten. And because they had no money, the rabbit was obviously you know, already decomposing when the actor Hal broke, had to bite into it. The film is notable because it gave Richard Romulus his first role. Now, Romulus is best known for appearances like Mean Streets and The, uh, and the Assassin. But this is just like a freak surprise thing. I've said before, Milligan was literally picking up any hard up down a heel actor and offering them a few dollars a week. Um, uh, Borsk was uh, typing up the scripts to get some more cash um, just to create more money from the deal and try and get some money together from what Milligan was doing. I mean, and even in the world of this B-roll, B-movie filler for second, 42nd Street, just something to lash on, really, to keep the audience still in, in their seats, he, Milligan still had the ability to fuck things up. 
His first print for the ghastly ones was too short, and an additional scene had to be filmed to build book up the running time, and even then it's still only 70 minutes. The scene, which is the first thing you see, makes very little sense and adds another just adds another death to the mix. In this Colin is the killer, but they couldn't afford to get another pair of his damaged teeth props and it they'd already gone missing, so they had to go without. So I've written a rather grim picture here of an artist. But I think it's fair to say that there's more to the man than that. Milligan does have his fans. Something Weird has uh, released some of his films on DVD. And while some of the films are, films are lost, they are influential. Writing in The Guardian last year, Driver, uh, Drive and Only God Forgives director Nicholas Winden uh, Reffin said, When I was about 12... I tricked my mother into buying me my first book about film, Splatter Movies, by John McCarthy. That's when I became aware of Andy Milligan and started looking for, f- for videos of his films, such as Gutter Trash, Flashpot on 42nd Street, Guru the Mad Monk, and The Naked Witch. When I finally saw them, I was taken back, first by their crudeness and then by how difficult it was to sit through them. But at the same time, I realised that there was a man who made films his own way, on his own terms. He used the medium as something he could streamline his consciousness into, and I found that fascinating. Few filmmakers can boast of having a recognisable style, but when you see a Milligan movie, you're in no doubt whose film it is. He was sort of a Douglas Sirk figure. There's so much subtext in his movies, and the more you get into them, the more you realise that they were made by somebody who was very tormented and very intelligent. A sensitive man, he used films and art form to express his views on life. I see a lot of similarities between him and Fastbinder. Both were angry, troubled characters, both were gay of course, and both worked in theatre as well as film. Now Nicholas Winding Refn was instrumental in getting Nightbirds um, a proper release in the UK. Um, it's it's this the film that was one of the films we said before that was filmed in London <clears throat> has been released by the BFI on Blu-ray and um, despite its rather you know cruddy nature it shows that even men like Milligan troubled and angry men who desperately just want to create something and get in a, in a, in a pound so they can keep on going even they can find an audience and you know with the BFI as well the British Film Institute shows that really there is love for all things so the film was um, released in the UK uh, by the Scorpio uh, label in March 1983 and was banned as a nasty in August 84 and it stayed on the list throughout the panic it has no UK release at the moment, although it is available as a something weird double bill with Seeds of Sin. Uh, it's a really good, um, it's a really good package. That there's a great audio commentary on it as well. Um, as I said, it it was recover- released as Blood Rights and has the benefit of have being one of the films with interesting because it has a, a flip cover on as well, so it's both sides, so you can flip the video around, which is interesting considering the fact that most films that released that point were. Um, were rentals, so um, I'm not exactly sure what they were playing at, really. 
and that's you know it, it, it I think it hasn't been released in the UK not because it's particularly shocking anymore um, but because uh, I think people they, they might you know you need people with a genuine love for the film to kind of release it like we were saying about Nicholas Winding Riffin who would you know fight for that film to be released right these days Nightbirds is for the turned on generation the now movie of our time are you a queer? Filmed in London's East End, Nightbirds is a chronicle of today's permissive youth. for young adults who don't mind having their faces slapped. On Sundays? Uh, on Mondays? On stubborn Mabel, you're giving me a hard on. Oh! oh! What a dirty mind you have. What's the address? It's 169 Commercial Street. That's a gay number. What do you mean? You can explain that one to him when you get home. I don't know what you mean. Don't you, love? Before I met you, all I'd ever do was, what, masturbate. self-destructive forces of the female come together in Nightbirds. Nightbirds is a study of moral masturbation. Everyone's private demon come alive. It wasn't my fault. I wouldn't take any bets on it. Yeah? Good luck. Christ, you really know how to break me balls, don't you? That's what I like about you, Ginger. You've got class. Sorry. Sorry. 
that sorted for this week um, thanks very much for all the support and people getting in touch with me on Twitter uh, people like at Trevor underscore Hodge uh, at Double Agent 73 and at Grindhouse Dave oh and at HOM Podcast as well and also thanks to uh, Good Podcast and his website is goodpodcast.com who uh, left a, a review on the iTunes and also uh, wrote a lovely piece about the podcast on his website kind of recommending it I mean that's fantastic stuff there so that's really lovely um, and also thank to uh, John Cottage who is uh, at Chaosphere40k as well who um, just been lovely loads of people have been retweeting it and getting people involved um, at RoadRory76 as well who um, you know really Really kind uh, people who have, you know, pushed the show, and uh, that that's absolutely fantastic. Um, if you want to get in touch with me, please do. My Twitter is at orange underscore monkey. My uh, email address is videonastiespodcast at gmail.com. Or you can go on the website videonastiespodcast.com, and there's all you know all the articles and the uh, the podcasts and trailers for upcoming features, and also um, you can leave comments on there as well. Um, so next week we've got another extremely low budget film but uh, one that has um, elements of uh, well I quite like it I think you know I think it's, it's, it's for what it is I think it's well made and it, it, it does you know it does it, has, it does work as such and that film is Axe so until next week take care and I'll speak to you soon goodbye seen a video nasty i wouldn't i have far too much how, how can you judge on a video nasty? oh you've never seen one i actually don't need to see visually what i know is in that film
Well, what a strange man. I never realized there was no love between Mama and Papa. You know, Mother never let us know. Well, I don't like it. The whole thing frightens me. Oh, you your imagination.